Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And today's episode is a deep dive of a Steffenfeld game from 2007. Ding, ding, ding. Jake and I just couldn't get enough. We're back here. 2022 isn't officially over, and we're covering our first game of 2023. And we thought, what better way to kick off the year? Maybe a little prematurely with a deep dive right back into Steffenfeld, a designer that both Jake and I really enjoy, with a game that is known for having a brutal design. So... In this episode, we'll sort of talk about if we think that that reputation is warranted. We'll talk through some of the interesting mechanics that are here, the influence of his other games. And I'd love to get to the bottom of, with Jake, what makes a Feld game really feel like a Feld game? Also, just so you know why we're covering a game right now, but counting it in our 2023 after our (laughs) year-end review... It's because we wanted to really line up our episodes. So we're going to, next week, take a break from recording. Uh, So don't expect an episode of Decision Space to publish next week. But the following week will be episode 100 of Decision Space. It's going to be a mission planning episode where we talk about games that we're excited to cover in 2023 and maybe beyond on this show. And then episode 101, the following episode, what Jake and I are calling Decision Space 101. It's going to be an overview of what we think are some of the best episodes that we've done in essentially the first two years of this podcast, uh, a reflection on all the things we've learned, and also a reflection on how this project's been going. Have we accomplished our mission in some ways? What could we do better? Where do we want to take the show in the future? So we hope you'll join us for those two episodes because they're undoubtedly going to be awesome. But today, it's in the year of the dragon, Steffenfeld, all day long. So Jake, what's your opinion review of this game? In the year of the dragon is one of the most frustrating learning experiences I've had with a game on this show, just because like, for whatever reason, like this game is not, that complex we played many more games that are much more complex than this just from like a rules overhead load this one was really tough for me to understand and get into it also makes me feel really dumb profoundly stupid in a way that few other board games do because you could just see the whole game laid out in front of you so you know early on i've said this is probably my least favorite feld game I'm not sure if that holds up anymore. Now that I've played it so much and started to get into it, I'm definitely finding enjoyment in this game, but I still don't think it's at like the top of Feld games for me. So I think I want to put it somewhere in the range of like 7.5. Interesting. Okay. So a good game, one that you enjoy, but not one that you're going to bump into your upper echelon of Stephen Feld games. Yeah, it's, it's like hanging out with like aquasphere and like the castles of tuscany Uh oh jake mentioned the castles of tuscany it's not a good sign okay <laughs> here's, I, I think that's a fun game i haven't played it actually so i shouldn't okay. i shouldn't spread too much hate on it but here's my here's my review and then we can kind of get into it but in the year of the dragon is a terse and tense entry in feld's ludography it's equal parts brutal rewarding and challenging and also fun despite its core being a point style salad sorry jake Despite its core being a point salad style Euro game, its theme shines through in every play. There's agony and joy in this speedy but dense design, and I wish we saw more games that weren't afraid to toss its players straight in the deep end like in the Year of the Dragon. Nine out of ten. Whoa. I I really enjoy this game. I think this is a fantastic game. Dang. Rocket takeoff right there. That's higher than I expected. And I think we'll get into more of, of our, you know, different of opinion as we get into the episode like i know for example you feel like this is a very variable game and that hasn't been as much my experience so i'd be really interested to dive in more into those differences but we should probably head right into our kind of game background to sort of put people into the space where this game came out because it is one of Steffenfeld, my personal favorite designer's earliest game. Yeah, you might know Steffenfeld for games that we've already mentioned on the show, uh, like The Castles of Burgundy or Bonfire or uh, Forum or, or Trajan, some of his most well-known designs. But In the Year of the Dragon 
came out in the third year in which Steffenfeld had a published game. It came out in 2007, and it was published alongside Notre Dame. So it was probably his third or fourth published design, depending on which one of those was signed first. Uh, before this, Steffenfeld only had two published designs. In 2006, Rum and Pirates was published, which is a game that you'll occasionally hear discussed, I think, among really uh, fanatical Feld fans. Yeah, or people I, who I would have... think like it probably requires that you're like, I want to play all of Feld games. Yeah, right? that's the only way you're getting back. You have to seek it out for yep. sure. Or maybe if you've been in the hobby for a really, really long time. Yeah, if you played it when it came of, out. Exactly. Sure. And then preceding that, Roman Pirates in 2006, there was Roma in 2005, Steffenfeld's first design, a game I truthfully know nothing about. Yeah, me neither. So really good job on uh, for us on our research. But, <laughs> but I think it, it underscores that this is a very old design, both in Feld's oeuvre and also his ludography, but also just sort of when this was coming out. This is this is a game that I think is of a different time in, in board games. And we can sort of talk about if it feels that way or if it doesn't. Uh, I might make the argument that it somehow manages to feel pretty modern and pretty fresh. It, totally. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. It's like everything old is new again, kind of yeah. in board games a little bit. Where inter- interestingly, like Notre Dame is a game that came out, you said, in 2007 as well. Have you played that one? I have not. So that is like an interesting little, I guess it's action selection game, or maybe you would consider it worker placement game where you're kind of building out. You're not building out, you're like, I don't know, like you have your own sector of the city that you're like upgrading various bits. So it's like this interesting mechanism where like if you go to a space one time, you get one gold. And then if you go there with a second action cube on like a future, then you'd get like two gold Mm. and like so on and so forth. So it like incentivizes like hitting the same spots over and over. There's more going on in the game than that. But that one felt to me when I played it like a game that's just been like iterated upon and improved. Like it didn't hold together perfectly where when I play in the year of the dragon, it feels like totally different than any other game that I've played. Like, I don't, I don't know that this particular game has such a clear kind of design tree that would follow from it. Yeah. Which I think might be part of the reason why I enjoy it so much is it's, it feels really unique in terms of games that I've played even in the past five or 10 years. Like there aren't a lot of games that are like this game and it's a very simple game. So it sort of stands on its own. Interestingly, I just want to sort of add some other touchstones to Steffenfeld design so people sort of can find themselves within the ludography. So in 2009, Macau came out, which is another older game, but that one that people mention pretty frequently has this cool delayed resource selection mechanism. That's one I'd be curious about covering on the show maybe someday. Yeah. And then in 2011, that's when the Castles of Burgundy came out. I think Macau is one of the games that was tapped in the new city like game series that queen games is putting out sort of re-implementing a lot of these classic Feld designs that are difficult to get these days so yeah interesting that 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 one got that treatment and in the year of the dragon not yet well wait it's it's not named after a city how could you how could you bring it into the there's you can't call this (laughs) amsterdam what are we gonna do I guess we could just call it, you know, like Beijing, Beijing. Yeah. yeah, or something along those lines. But they chose not to for now. It's not rooted in a city. I, I will say that you don't in Bruges, you really feel that. But then again, I wonder, I haven't played Macau. I wonder how much Macau feels like it's the city of Macau. Probably not. I'll spoil it for you. Not at all. Yeah, not at all. Okay, <laughs> It's like mostly like about like trade routes in like the Mediterranean. Okay, this is the last little... Is that the Mediterranean? I really hope so, or else I'm going to look like an idiot. Macau is in Southeast. It's in the Pacific. I have to to tell you, so not the Mediterranean. But that's okay. What are you trying to say here? (laughs) I I should tell the audience, I have a cold, okay? This is not (laughs) the best version of myself, so... I like that you saved it for there. (laughs) This is my final question for you, Jake, before we actually get into the meat of In the Year and the Dragon. Do you think Bruges feels like it's set in the city of Bruges? I I mean, like, I think this is getting into, like, the what is a Feld game ethos. It's, like, (laughs) absolutely not, right? Like, like it could be, uh, it it could be any city. It could be any sort of theme, really. Like, you know, there's, I would recommend people check out the Shut Up and Sit Down video they did on this series of 
queen game city games they like review all four in one review and, and they have this really funny bit where they like describe what's happening in the game in, in the exact same terminology for every single game and it fits yep that sounds about right <laughs> yeah yeah and that's kind of the world of sevenfold but interestingly i'm not sure this game kind of sets itself apart from some of his other designs we can talk about if it feels thematic in the back end but I just wanted to sort of situate that for people. And based on my experience, I was really surprised that this is the sort of third or fourth, depending on your counting, published design from Steffenfeld. Yeah, totally. And and only, it's funny, like, too, being entering the hobby at the point I did, it was like Steffenfeld always existed, right? sure. You know, so it's, it's just interesting to think sort of like, how young we are in this sort of like golden age of modern board gaming where you can take some of the most like legendary designers ever and like they've only been doing this for 17 years which is hey that's a lot of time like that's cool you know but that's not like that much time you know what i mean like that's true like for for like somebody that's on a lot of people's like mount rushmore of game design for a very problematic americanized (laughs) example of yeah. The Legend of Zelda predates Steffenfeld's designs by 20 years. Yeah, there you uh, go. Two decades. So, yeah, it's interesting. Well, should we jump right into your rules overview to give people a little bit of a better idea of what's going on in the Year of the Dragon and why it may not fit with their conception of what a Steffenfeld game is? And then we'll meet back on the other side to do our traditional decision space deep dive of this classic game. In the Year of the Dragon is an action drafting game played over the course of 12 rounds, representing the 12 months of the Year of the Dragon. There are three primary gameplay elements, people tiles, action cards, and events. Each of the game's 12 rounds are split into four phases. Phase one, at the start of each round, players select an action. Then players each take a person tile and add that person to their village, augmenting the future actions that they might take. Phase three, an event is resolved and all players have to respond to that event. Then at the end of each round, there's a scoring phase. Each round, the game's seven action cards are shuffled and randomly grouped based on the number of players in the game and done so as evenly as possible. For example, in a three-player game, these action cards are split into three groups, two groups of two, and one group of three action cards. Then in turn, based on a player's progress on the person track, governed by which tiles they've previously drafted and how many military actions they've taken, players select an action to carry out. These actions allow players to gain money, expand their palace, prepare for a fireworks show, score victory points, move up the person track based on their military prowess, or trade money for privilege, which will score them points at the end of every subsequent round. During the action selection round, players may select an action which was previously selected by another player, but only if they pay three money to the supply, a steep price. This not only applies to the specific actions taken by another player, but also all actions grouped together with that action, making you much more likely to select an action in a group not previously selected by another player. Each player begins the game with 11 person cards, one for each of the game's nine types of people in the game, and two wilds. At setup, players choose two people tiles to add to their palace without spending a card, but during each round, during the person step, players in turn select one of the game's nine person types represented by the person tiles to add to their palace, spending a matching card or one of their two wild cards to add that person to their palace, meaning you'll never be able to have more than three of the same type of person in your palace. People tiles augment the impact of actions players select in subsequent rounds and also score two victory points at the end of each game and might affect how certain events impact the play. Players are constantly striving to build up a robust population of people tiles in their palaces because this gives you access to strong actions and mitigates the effect of negative events that might occur. At the start of each game, 10 event tiles of five types are shuffled and randomized behind two tiles that start each year in each play of in the year of the dragon representing peace in that third phase where events are resolved the effects of each of these randomly assigned events are resolved for example a drought event might occur which makes players have to pay rice equal to the number of palaces that they have or it might be a fireworks display that allows players to score points for the fireworks that they've put together or it might be an imperial tribute that forces players to pay for money 
to the supply, otherwise releasing people from their palace for every money that they can't pay. Typically, events either present scoring opportunities for players based on their progress towards certain goals or hurt players, forcing them to release people from their palaces if they can't meet the requirements of that event. Finally, at the end of each round, any passive scoring opportunities are tallied. After 12 rounds, players score a final time for people remaining in their palaces, monks in their palaces, uh, based on the type of palaces that those monks are in, and any money they have remaining after trading in and selling back some goods, at which point the player with the most points is crowned the victor. Thank you, Brendan, for that rules overview. Hopefully that gives you some idea of what we'll be talking about in the rest of this episode, where we will characterize the decision space of this game. So, Brendan, where do, what do you think we just start off with that? Yeah, we have to start there. And I think that the most important thing to, to know about that when we discuss this game is that you get to see it, it's a game based around these 12 rounds, right? And the there are effects that get processed in every round that are really impactful. They affect the people that will maybe remain in your palace or they affect scoring opportunities. And those are randomized. They're different every game outside of the first two, which are always peaceful. So nothing happens. You get a little bit of time to prepare. But then there's these dramatic random events that term- that shape everything. But they're not random because from the beginning of the game, you know every event that is going to occur and where in the game it's going to occur. Super yes. interesting. Really interesting. And, ju- you know, and it is kind of funny thematically to think about, like, what if you were, like, the ruler of a group of peoples or a castle and you could just, like, foretell exactly the type of, like, crisis events that were coming to you? Oh, yeah. The, the Mongolian invasion is coming up this August. We've got to yeah. prepare. Like I, on I do... your Outlook calendar, you've got, like, oh, yeah, we do have that meeting with the Mongols. It's been sitting there. <laughs> Then there's the crap. I totally forgot to prepare for it. The September drought, the October fireworks festival, and then yeah. But oddly enough, it kind of fits for me. Thematically, it sort of works, right? Like if you were trying to hold an empire together, I guess you're you're nobles. You're not actually an emperor. You're sort of nobles assisting the emperor in preparing for these events. You could kind of plan a year ahead, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. Like you, I mean, yeah, some of them a little bit more so than others like sure firework festival we could predict when that might be coming down the pike maybe we don't know when there's going to be a tornado a plague or or, or, (laughs) right or or an earthquake a little bit that's that's why that's uh the super events expansion yeah which we'll give our first impressions on later in the episode but so jake i'm curious i so there's these two sort of randomizing elements in this game that kind of make up the motor of this game that creates the variability. There's the variable event tiles that come out that form the full year of the dragon. And then there's these random pairings of action selection cards uh, that are grouped based on the number of players in the game. So if there's three players playing, these eight or nine action cards, depending on if you're playing with one of the expansions, will be grouped into three randomly selected groups. uh, And then players select from those actions as part of each round of play. So those are really the two elements. One of them is completely known from the start of the game, and one of them is randomized the actions every single round. So you can plan, but you can't plan for what your opponents might do. But it is randomized, but you always know what actions are going to be available, which is all of them. And the only impact of somebody else taking the action space you want or in the grouping is you have to pay three extra coins, which feels massive to me. It it feels, yeah, but if you have the coins, which you could easily get to a state in this game where like you kind of have an excess coins right towards the end. I don't know. I guess not easily, but it, it does feel like impactful but not not always tremendously. Like sometimes you can be like, I need to do this and I have the money. So it doesn't matter what anyone's doing. I'm building more palace floors. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that one of the enticing things about this game is some games, you're going to have a lot of money, you know, because this, it's so much driven by you're augmenting your actions by selecting people. Uh, we'll get more into sort of how that works. And I talked about it some in the rules overview, but 
you have some wild cards. You, everyone always has access to at least one of every person type available, but then you can push your, your sort of tableau in certain directions because you have two wild. So maybe this game, I really invest in the money action up front, and then I have way more flexibility around what actions I'm selecting. Or I, you invest in the people track, so you just always get to pick first for the rest of the game, which is pretty funny in a two-player game. Right, like you could easily get so far out in front that your opponent's like, "I'm not even gonna interact with that anymore." Right, but and then if you do put yourself so far in front, maybe you've overinvested. Yeah, right. You you afford you've given up other opportunities for sure. So I definitely want to talk about that mechanism too. We got to put that okay. on the list. But okay. let's try to characterize our decision space here. I think that. So it has to be dynamic on some level because of the way that the actions come out. I think for me, just that that pairing of these actions coming together randomly at the start of each round gives it a really dynamic feel because sort of your ability to do things, your agency is pushing in certain directions. I think you're going to make an argument that it's static. And there's an argument that it's static too. I don't think we've covered a lot of games on the show that feel like a mashup between a dynamic and a static game. And that sounds like a paradox or an oxymoron, but because you know all of the event tiles that are out, that feels sort of static. All the the actions are always there. So that feels kind of static, but to me, the impact of the random pairings and whether you go first or not actually makes this game feel pretty dynamic because you can't just go in with a plan. You have to, one, adapt to what your opponents are doing, but two, adapt to the random pairings of these cards. I think that that aspect of the game is dynamic for me, like the spirit of the game. Like when I think of like the overall sense I get when I'm playing is actually waning. Interesting. Sure. Like, and and that has to do with the other aspect of the game, which is adding people to your palaces, which you start off with all the options of, but then that wanes down. And also like, I, I find that the, Right at the beginning of the game, you're going to have the opportunity to interact with all the events twice. Yeah. But then as that wanes down, there are like actions that you're just not interested in taking anymore. Right. Like after the famines have both passed, like I'm eliminating the rice tile from my options and action like that would do me no good yeah no totally and i think i'm really glad you said that jake because that really does capture the essence of this game because so many of the events some of the events are scoring opportunities uh some of them are scoring opportunities that just hurt you if you're if you're behind if you haven't pursued enough you're going to have to lose a person from your palaces you're going to lose a part of your tableau that affects your agency in the game and then some of them are just straight up you better have prepared for this because if you don't have the ability to fight disease, well, a contagion event is happening and everyone has to release three people. So this game, the soul of it is the game is waning and you're trying to fight back as hard as you can and fight that that waning that waning wave and make your, your palace and your tableau as large as possible as the whole game and all your opponents just push on you to try to tear you down and kill your people and tear yeah. your palaces away. The other really important element to think about this decision space uh, and, and where it feels distinct from a lot of other games we've covered and, and, a, and a lot of Feld's other offering is that it feels so much more clear. Mm. Like I think the clarity the decision space affords you and and especially from like when you think of like long term strategy yeah. is you know it's almost like a game of Castle of the Burgundy if like you knew ahead of you rolled all your dice and you're like okay these are the twenty five different dice bearings that you'll use in order and like how that would change the game that's how I feel about the the fact that you get to see all the events in order here and that can be fun to navigate but it can also like that's when I say like this game makes me feel dumb because Mm. it's like i feel like all the information is there in front of me and it's just like up to me to like like it puts more onus on the player to like be smart (laughs) and whereas like in like castle of burgundy where you can just like roll bad it's like well i rolled bad you know so that's why i'm like not doing good this game which feels nice as a player yeah where this has that sort of like brutal sense of like no you're doing bad because you're dumb there, and there are ways in which it pushes back against that a little bit, but I think you have to be like, it's not even super clear until you've played it a few times, like where those elements are. And I think they are coming from the randomness of the flop of actions to some greater or lesser extent. 
Uh, and, and I guess they're also coming from the fact that you can't pick the exact same two palace people to start with as anyone else in the game. Sure. So that forces you to be on like a different path. But without that, basically like there would be a single optimal path that everyone would try to follow that you could math out. And that is just something to be aware of. I think that's something that really defines this decision space. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I, there's also a little bit, I guess, in terms of, like you said, so you start at a different, and then where you put your people in your palaces, because that can affect when you're releasing people. But like you said, there probably is, at the start of this game, there's an optimal path. And it's about trying to stick as much to that as possible. Mm-hmm. I, it's That's a really fascinating way to take it. I want to respond to your other point really quickly, Jake, The how the openness of the information about the events can make players feel dumb. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this anecdote, but back when Magic the Gathering was really new and they knew they wanted to create a pro tour uh, and they knew that they didn't just want the only format to be bring your own deck of your own cards, they wanted to have some sort of limited environment, right? So you open packs and you make a deck with what you have. They thought that what this drafting environment would be, would be you'd open the pack Everyone would see, everyone at the table would see all the cards in the pack and you would all pick from that face-up display. But because the information of opening that pack was completely open, it was very paralyzing to people and it created this environment where people really drafted slowly. They, they felt bad if they made the wrong decision because everyone saw they got to make the wrong decision. So they just moved the packs to the player's hands because the information is then more personal. So it's this interesting mirroring of sort of a way different game, but the same yeah. consequences. I think Though I don't feel like AP is really an issue many people would have with this game. I don't think reason. AP of, is here I don't here know either. why, but cause I do think it's similar in that way. But maybe it's just because of the fact that like all the actions are the same. And like when once you're in the middle of the game, it's so clear like what's going to be like more profitable to you. Yep. That's, I guess that's another way that this feels clear because you get to a point of, why do I never remember this word? I'm blaming the cool again. Not async, but... Oh, asymmetric? Like, yeah, you quickly come to like very asymmetric positions where like I have a rice gardener guy in my yeah. palace, so that action is twice as valuable to me as to you, uh, you know, and, and so on and so forth. Not to mention like, I don't have any rice and that event's coming up in one or two turns. So like, I really need to take this, like all those things make it so that it's, I find, or I've found that it's really easy to quickly eliminate like half or more of your options based on that. And based on where other players have gone, right. You can kind of really quickly narrow in to one of like, it's eight, right? Eight, eight actions. Yeah. Eight actions. Yeah. No, is there eight? <laughs> seven seven yeah i, th- I thought I was like, there must be an odd number it's eight if you add the wall okay yeah um yeah so we've been an eight and seven but yeah like that also i think if, if the game is like both like super hard from like it's challenging and punishing from like a long-term strategic overview but on your turn it's pretty easy once you've like really gained mastery of the different systems in play which I also had a, a lot of trouble with like I which maybe we could talk about in a second like there's just a lot of different stuff that works mm. differently um, but assuming like you really understand everything well I think getting to like an optimal point uh, an optimal decision based on all the mistakes you've made previously is like not too difficult yeah some of that too uh, I think that the face up you hinted at this but I want to emphasize this point because it's one of my favorite parts about the decision space of this game is this game is about maximizing your ability to deal with bad things happening to you, right? So you will always have to release people in this game from your palaces. It it will inevitably happen to you. So what does that mean this game is about? This game is about releasing people at the most opportune times. So like you said, there's these two points in the game where people are going to have to pay rice based on the number of palaces that they have full of people. Palaces are good. You score a point every at the end of each round for every palace you have. So you want to build lots of palaces, but it means that you need more rice when these events come up events come up because they're randomized 
one game, you might have an event where the the rice the two rice events are all the way at the end, where you you, need, you only need to feed your people towards the end of the year because that's when the droughts are going to happen. Another game, they might come and both be in the first few events. Uh, and then in a third and different game, right? You might have one early on and one towards the end. And all those scenarios feel really differently from a planning perspective because once those events are gone, like Jake said, you never have to worry about feeding feeding your people with having rice around again. You can let your rice farmers go. If, if there's a contagion event, they get to the top of the list. And I think figuring out how to optimally release people is this really fun puzzle of sort of what do I still need uh, in terms of just meeting the conditions of the events that are coming. And events kind of fall into these different tiers of like, I have to be ready for this. I might want to do this. It depends on what other people do. Are other people going to commit to the fireworks display? Do I have a large chance of being the best scorer in that event? Great, I want to commit to it. If not, I'll just put my toe in a little bit. The Mongol invasion, uh, which is a sort of military event, is kind of similar to that. So there's these sort of different realms of trying to guess if you should push and really specialize or maybe pull back and look for points elsewhere. So that's, those are some of my favorite decisions in the game. My favorite decisions, I think, it actually spans both the action selection and the people selection or whatever, yeah. which is that like this game has, it reminds me of like, I think I meant to look this up beforehand, but when did Dominion come out? Mm, I think 2011. Okay, so a little while after this, but I think like, This game has such a clear trade-off between like progressing your game state and scoring points. 2008. I got to correct it. 2008. Right right in the same time. And it feels like it's very like similar design ethos going around because right Dominion, that's the whole thing, right? You build up an engine and then to actually win, you have to like start adding victory points into it, into your deck, which then makes your engine worse. And here... You know, anytime you take an action that is going to score you points or put a person in your palace for the purpose of scoring points, it like directly, you know, that's you're giving up an opportunity to like deal with the event. Yeah. Like you're making your actual like position like and, and the stability of your cast palace worse i love that comparison jake because also dominion starts and you have a completely known information on the board of all the tables you might ever buy it's kind of like the strategic planning in dominion of what path am i going to go down feels pretty similar to in the year of the dragon but the interactivity of the action selection i think pushes maybe players in a little bit different directions here uh dominion you might miss a beat and end up buying a different card because you get forced into a cheaper card than your opponent does or something so there's a little bit of that but i think that the that's a really interesting comparison this might be one of those like twin decision spaces that you wouldn't expect yeah yeah and maybe that's not true because obviously like the mechanics are so different but there i think they do share some pretty important similarities when you're kind of like thinking about the decision space in more abstract terms. Yeah, I, I think that's really insightful, Jake. Do you so let's let's pivot the conversation a little bit to this question because for people who talk about this game, it's always discussed as being a really brutal game. I think a huge part of that is the the built-in need to hit certain beats. When the contagion event comes up, everyone at the table has to release three people unless they've brought healers into their palaces who have these little mortar and pestle symbols on them and it if you can ignore it if you have for every mortar and pestle you have you ignore the need to release one person so if you have three mortar and pestles you get to ignore all three the need to release three people usually though that's not going to be the case but that mechanism feels pretty brutal if you have a palace that doesn't have people in it sort of deteriorates because no one's living in that palace uh, so even if you've built up, the game is pulling you back over the, over time. Uh, there's this decay that happens through that. What do you what do you think, Jake? Do you think that that's an earned reputation, or is it just because so many if if more games had this sense of fighting against the the waning spirit of the game and the decay forced by the game, do you think we would feel that this game itself was especially brutal, or is it just the juxtaposition of so many games that people play? Uh, and that are popular right now are about these dopamine heads of building up and getting more, not trying to fight against losing. Where I'm at now with the game after playing it like a dozen times or whatever, it doesn't feel that brutal. Like it feels like I know what to expect. It feels pretty manageable to like hit the important points sometimes. I mean, I don't think like in any of my last like five or six games, I've really like had 
a huge disaster where I'm like, was unable to prepare for something at all that just like totally wiped me out. But when I was learning the game, which I hinted to in my overview, I definitely found this to be incredibly brutal. But I think that speaks more to the open information, right? And like the clarity the game offers you. Because it really, I think, A, the the first time you play it, you might not do that well just because like you don't know those beats Mm -hmm. as much and when it's important to do stuff. And also you might just not have like internalized what is frankly like a game that's just like full of edge case rules maybe not edge case rules but it's just like a lot of different stuff like all the d- events work differently all the people work differently right you mentioned like the healer has like they you don't have to activate them they just like help you out whereas like the rice person like that increases your rice collection like when you take that action like everything works differently so it's like totally understandable how in the first time or two playing this you're gonna end up with like a low score and a more, you know, in the 20s or something. And, and a more experienced person is going to score somewhere near 100 potentially or more. And that can feel brutal, right? If you're scoring 20 and like have no palace at the end, like a few people and your opponent's got like a big palace thing and they score it. And I think that's heightened by the fact that the decision space is so clear and it, it makes fairly or not, it makes you think like, wow, I'm pretty dumb. Because, like, I saw all this coming and I could do nothing to stop it when clearly there was a way through to avoid these disasters. I definitely think a a part of the brutality, too, uh, it's probably a fair reputation. Even if there are more games that had this sort of feel, I think there's a few little things that sort of contribute. But, like you said, the more I play, the more I enjoy that. Because when you get better at the game, you really feel a sense of mastery for being able to fill up a palace. I will say at this point, I feel like you're a little bit better at this game than me, Jake, and you you experience palace envy in this game some where you look over and you're like how do you have all those people how are your palaces so big as a, my palaces are just decimated I, by I feel like I beat you like one time yeah but you're going to beat me in the two other games that we have going right now <laughs> but i will say another piece of i think why you felt there was so much is at its core this is a point salad game you're yeah. going to score from all these different events potentially and then there's also extra little rules right like you're going to score for each palace you have at the end of every round. You're going to score for any uh, court ladies you have at the end of every round. And then you score your privilege tokens, which are this other thing to wrap your head around where you can basically, the earlier you buy these tokens, the more victory points they're worth. But you have to wrap your head around that because you score them at the end of every round. So it's sort of, I, I think that there's some mental load to that. And then at the end of the game, you score every person you have, not your palaces. You score each of your monks based on how many floors in each palace there are. So that's a little thing to prepare for. And then you also score your money. So there's just lots of things to think about in terms of incentives. I, yeah, I think it's really hard to like, at least for me to like understand and like visualize where points are coming from, mm. especially in like early plays. And and you also don't realize like how bad things are gonna get or not right where like i think that's like the most i've found improvement in this game is like understanding like when you can take an offbeat to buy a privilege or put a court lady into your palace yeah and you don't need to be preparing for the next bad event that's coming down the pike because you definitely don't always need to be doing that in this game but how could you know that the first time you're playing this game one of the cool things to that's very tough to evaluate sometimes too can be early on right those privilege tokens that score at the end of every round can be very powerful because if you buy them and maybe round one that's 12 points oh i just pushed a button and i got 12 points but this whole game right is about trying to stay in a positive feedback loop and avoid getting stuck in a negative feedback loop and when it feels brutal is because if something goes wrong the chances of more things going wrong just explodes. If you lose your ability to have the rice action be powerful for you because you lose a your little rice farmer who has two uh, rice symbols, so your action instead of making three rice goes to just making one or whatever it is, that's terrible for you. So, And if that happens before you ever get the chance to use them, that's, you're going to spiral and you're not going to catch up. Events that could have been positive are going to be negative. But the flip side is, is if you just barely stay on the wave and you, you, you know, the first few bumps, you just make it over them. Then you can turn that into the positive feedback loop where you have more time because you're taking stronger actions that let you take stronger actions in the future and score more points. So I think that the brutality comes from the fact that if you make a little mistake, it can end up feeling like yeah. a massive mistake. Yeah, that's really insightful. And I, 
I, just while we're on the topic of like how much different stuff there is in this game, I think that's another way that it doesn't feel like a Feld game to me. Mm. And at least when I think of like the more modern Feld offering, where I feel like the game is like distilled down to like like Castle Burgundy, it's like four actions, and they're all really easy to understand. And the same with like Bonfire, like yeah, it's like a complex game, but like understanding like the core of it is mm. pretty simple. It's like I can. I can understand how each of these like six actions work or whatever it is in that game. Whereas here there's just more actions. There's seven. And then there's also like the whatever dozen different type of people, maybe not a dozen. How many people are there in this game? Ooh, that's a good question. There it's are, a lot. And you have yeah. to know like all of them at the very beginning and like, re- and like understand how they like interact with the game system over the course of the game. So I think it, you know, that's just a different thing. I, you know like yeah. i think the mental overload or not overload but the mental load there is pretty high it's pretty high compared to some of the other felt games or even like notre dame is another one that's like feels like a much more simple core yeah even There's, if like the actions you're doing is like i just pick one and i put a person like that's easy to understand but i just feel like it requires more like capacity to like know how everything works together than in some of those other games yeah there's nine Okay. Nine people. I think that this game has the classic Feld uh, sort of enigma where it feels, it can feel like a lot to learn up front. And then once you've learned it, sort of like, oh, this is a pretty simple game. It's pretty straightforward once you've internalized yeah, the rules. I still find myself playing on like board game arena, like clicking on like the events and just mm, like, to okay, see how what it does. exactly does this work again? Sure. And the same with some of the people. Maybe not so much now, but until like very recently. I'd be you know doing that on almost every turn. I'm like log back in. It's like okay, wait, this is the famine works this way. And that's different from the plague, which you know. Does sure, thing. I think that's really fair. I've definitely had to recheck how the tax action works. Of take how much money am I going to get exactly based on the number of tokens that I have and that sort of thing. Yeah, and you get the four, and it costs four. Like how much? I, I was confused in one of the games. Like wait, I had the three money I needed to pay the guy. It's like oh, he he takes four, four money. It's like he, oh. Because anyone can always take... That's another quirk that kind of trips you up. There's right. another secret action in this game, which is that you can always take up to three money. So if you have two money, you can take one money. If you have one money, you can take two. If you have zero, you can take three. But if you have three money, that action does nothing. You have to use the actual action that gains you money. So there, there are some little interesting edges like you were talking about here. But the other thing that I feel like is punishing about this game is that the, the card system which is that there's nine types of people in the game and you start the game with one of each of those cards. So you can, and then you also start with two wilds. So you can only ever recruit each type of person one time, plus you have two that you can recruit randomly and then you have your two starting people. So you base your strategy around what are my starting people, what are the events that are out, and what do I want to use my two wilds on? So if something goes wrong, part of the negative feedback loop and why you can't recover is if you... If you've you know invested in sort of getting someone who generates rice and then you feel you have to release that person, you lose them, you might not even have the ability if you use your two wilds already to go get another person to replace it. Just in this game, you've, you have no agency to go and prove that action anymore. And that's an adjustment. But the hand management puzzle of that, so fun. I love strategically planning my, my palaces based on the board. How differently do you think the game would play out if that was eliminated and you could just always take whatever? I think the problem is, is it would create edge cases where Where you're just like, I just take all the whatever. I just, yeah, I'm just investing in the research guy and every round I'm going for research and then I'm picking the books and I'm scoring 20 points. I think it's there to sort of prevent that sort of edge case. Yeah. Yeah. It is like a weird system. Like I think that feels very different than something you would see today. And yeah. I would almost say like inelegant. There's like a whole discussion on our discord in our pre-planner channel, which if you want to help us prepare for these episodes and play along with us, you know, come join the conversation there link in the description of this podcast. But a lot of people are saying this is like a very elegant game. And I feel like it's a very inelegant game huh. because of all those, like all the rules, everything working a little bit differently and being like ha- having a difficult core loop to internalize because of just how much different subsystems are interacting yeah that's maybe not subsystems but just like action choices 
there are a lot of subsystems. Like you could have a palace that's only this big and like the card thing works differently. And if your palace is empty, it's gone. And the way the income thing works is like, there. it's just like more, I think a lot of those things today, if this game was pitched, like a developer might be like, how can we, smooth how out can these we like edges? smooth out some of these rules? I think too, for me, part of the elegance in a game comes from something where all the numbers just kind of line up perfectly and you don't have to always reference the rules to know what's going to happen. So it's, I think that's where I see your sort of counter argument of this being an elegant game is sort of things like, oh no, I actually do have to check what the fireworks event says and how many victory points will I score and and you lose half rounded which way? Exactly, that sort of stuff. But I will say the overall structure, once you've internalized everything, it does feel like a pretty straightforward game. And it's sort of amazing how well the pieces yeah. fit together once you get it. It's about totally. getting it, though. Yeah. And at the end of the day, what is elegant? We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. We can, maybe we'll do a whole episode on that yeah, in the future. Pro- at some probably, point. probably should. But yeah. Okay, Jake, what do you think is, I want to talk about this question of like what makes a felda feld or at least what make what's a mechanic in this game that feels very feldian do, so do you have something that comes to mind i'm curious if it'll be the same thing well i to me this feels like probably the least feldian i i have played it's it's weird because i think like some of his more modern games mm-hmm. feel like closer bunched together yeah in some ways like Carpe Diem, Castles of Burgundy, Bruges, which is, I mean, it's not that modern, but like Castles of Tuscany, like I think those share more similar design ethos than this or like Aquasphere or there's like, he has like a auction game called like the Sprick, I'm not even going to try, like the Sprinkled Stalt or something. Hmm. Okay, I tried. Dang it. <laughs> I said I wasn't going to do that, but I don't know, like. I don't know that it feels like particularly like of Feld's canon because it to me this it is a point salad but it like pushes back against that a lot. Like I feel like mm-hmm. when I think of point salad, I think of like everything you do is going to be like helping you in some way. And while that's like sort of true here, like it just feels so much more like trading off the points gathering from like the things that are helping you like maintain your game state and improve your game state. Yeah. I think maybe I framed the question too large and I've betrayed our ability to answer it because it's <laughs> it's too hard without doing a full study of Feld. I think you're right. For me, this does feel like that classic Feld problem of here's a lot of different ways to score points. Find the best way in this specific play to uh-huh. score the most points. And what's best in this game might not be best in a different game. And that's part of the, the interesting depth of Feld games is that every play of a game feels like a different puzzle but for me the thing that shines through the most of like oh yes this game was designed by Steffenfeld is the player driven turn order around taking actions so there's this trade-off between I can invest my energy my potential output in this game my agency into going first or I can invest my energy and my agency into doing more but I'll go second so in this game, that takes the form of on every tile. This is one of the confusing systems. This is another just, like yeah. interesting, like confusing subsystem. I do really love this aspect of the game. Yeah. So most tile types in the game have two different versions of a tile. There's going to be stronger effects that will have multiple symbols. So for example, there's a rice farmer that has two rice bags. So when you take the rice action, you get two additional rices bags of rice which is great that's really powerful but it only gives you one on the whatever this like priority track in the game or there's a weaker rice farmer that only has a one bag on it but it has a four so when you take that you move up this initiative track essentially and whoever's further along that initiative track always goes first and then you take actions in that initiative order and i think for me that's one of the things that feels very feldy about this of that trade-off between it's it's so difficult to sort of say, how can I parse what the value of going first is in every turn going forwards? And am I really doing that because Jake could take back the ability to go first, even if I get ahead? Uh, and that's a really fun, impossible puzzle sort of at the core of this game. I think that is some of the most fun decision making, too, because even if you're not just like picking between the same action. Yeah, you're also like might be considering like, OK, I'd really want to like improve my palace as like an action and then there's like another action that's like 
like building out your palace is one of the actions. And then there's another action that, yeah, that would help me, but it's like not as essential. But, you know, even taking like the base form of it is going to give me more people track points than this other one. Yeah, totally. So, so yeah, how do you like weigh that? And that's really fun. And then there's the the sort of instances where I sort of, maybe I see that, Jake, you're in a situation, I've already invested in a lot of rice, so I don't need rice. So I'm probably not going to take the rice action. You don't have any. I'm choosing between, because the actions randomly get paired together, I can choose between doing this action now that's in this group that you wouldn't be interested in, or I could just take the action that's paired with the rice action to sort of put an even bigger tax on you. So it's this light bit of interactivity where yeah. if it was a toss up, maybe I actually take the action that's paired with the rice so that if you want to do that, you have to pay. And I think that that's kind of fun too. And it, it makes me look over and see what you're doing. Definitely another game that becomes more heads up the more you play it. Yeah. And that's, and that's something that, you know, I is it's a lot more fun, but I think it takes some doing to get to that state. Yep. Right. Is it, you know, you're so like worried about getting devastated by all the events in that first play. Like you can hardly be thinking about your opponent's palaces and everything. But definitely that's what the game becomes all about. Yep. Which it, is cool. It's cool too how the more you play, the more you can appreciate when someone does something that's sort of like, wow, you are confident right now. So if someone <laughs> opens with one of their two starting people as a court lady uh, who provides you no benefit except for the fact that at the end of every round, you score one additional point, sort of like, oh, you feel very prepared. You think that based on these events, you're going to have lots of time to get ready to deal with some of the downsides. So you're you're like calling your shot from the start well, of the I, game. I, I did that recently, I think, but it was less because of that and more because I was like the fourth person to go <laughs> in a four-person game. And like, I really wanted like, you know, the... The builder? The builder or like whatever it was, like the, maybe the Mongol events are coming up early. So, but like everybody had like taken that and something else. So it's like... If I wanted, I had to go all the way down to like yeah. my fourth top pick or something. Yeah, yeah. That's totally true. I actually love that it forces you into different pairs. I think that's a really important design decision that makes this game as interesting as it is. Just to our point about how the game improves with time and more plays, that might be showing its age a bit too, right? Mm. Where it's more important to smooth out the rough edges so that that first play is intuitive and fun yeah. in 2022 than it is in 2007 right definitely yeah yeah you know where publishers could be more comp and designers could be more confident that their games are going to get played 10 times yeah definitely i think really quickly i know that jake you and i have only delved into the expansions a little bit but this game was republished 10 years after it first came out and in that publication they re-released some expansions that came out only previously in this thing called the Aaliyah treasure chest in 2009 i think that that's true so this was like the the first large wide release of these two expansions and i i would love to talk about them and get your impressions our first impressions because i've only played a couple games with each and i think you have as well yeah they might inform the sort of decisions overall so I'm curious what you think of them. Here, I'll explain them for the listeners. The two expansions, one's sort of like a full expansion and one's kind of a mini expansion. So the full expansion is the Great Wall. So this is cool. It adds a new action that just gets shuffled in and split in the same way. And the, the action is a build a wall action. And then you can build a segment of the wall. Everyone starts with these wall tiles that have certain effects on them that are all different. One might give you three gold. One might give you, you can build a segment of your palace if you take the build a wall action and you spend that wall section tile that you have that builds a section of the palace. Or maybe it gets you a firework or a bag of rice, just these little nice effects. So it's sort of a, a flexible action that's always good for you and always different. But it's tied to the Mongol invasion of it because as you build these out, uh, basically if players haven't built the wall up to the point that the Mongol invasion occurs every round, the player who has contributed to the wall the least gets hit and they they lose some people. And otherwise, if you have built it up to that point, players score points equal to the investment that they've made into the wall. So if I have built three of the sections, I would score three victory points for doing that. What do you think of this expansion, Jake? I really like this expansion. I think it it does sort of smooth out some of those rough edges. What I really like about it is when you get to take that action, you get one of like six different options yeah. 
of what to do. And I feel like that is a way that the design is the only way really that the design is like charitable to players where it's like, Oh yeah, you may have like missed the step here, but you could just like take this action and like, you could have a firework or, you know, you could have a couple of coins as whatever you need. Yep. And that's, it feels good just to like, it feels rewarding to take the action. It feels good to get those things. And I do think it probably overall improves the player experience just a bit, like very little downside in terms of rules overhead. It's pretty intuitive and easy to to get up and running. So I like it, you know? Yeah, I really like this expansion. I think that in some ways it's almost a modernizing expansion and that it yeah. adds that little bit of flexibility. But I think it's really fun getting to plan around uh, these sort of effects. And sometimes based on how the actions come out, maybe I was planning to take the the right the rice action, but the opportunity might present itself. I have the wall tile that just gives me a bag of rice. Maybe I'll do that instead and see if I can kind of get in. So it gives you more nuanced decisions, I think is what I'm saying. It's kind of the, we always talk about those examples where it's a decision, it's a mechanism in the game that increases your agency. Yeah. Usually it's a token that you can spend to break a rule. Here, you're kind of spending these tiles to a little bit break a rule, but you're just getting a partial little effect. But to this, a this feels like man. the more felt the most Feldian aspect of the whole game, probably because it was designed later around, yeah, closer in proximity to his more popular designs. Totally, it doesn't surprise me either that we both love it because. To a starving man, like any meal tastes delicious, you know? Yeah. So when you're like, you, oh, one firework. Yeah. Bless wow. the Lord. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. And then the other expansion is this. It's called Mega Events. This is a, a really, it's a mini expansion. It's basically round seven. You add this added mega event that could happen that really dramatically has the potential to shape how the game plays out. So I'm going to read some of them. For example, at the end of round seven, it's the Lantern Festival and players score people in their palaces. You just score two victory points. Great. That one's just one of the nice ones. I want to start with one of the nice ones. You get two per person. Two per person, just like at the end of the game. Okay. Yeah. Then there's ones like the Tornado, which is each player at the end of round seven has to discard two of their person cards remaining in their hand. And then what that means is that the players only have one card each for eight months, eight, nine, and 10, 11, and 12. No, sorry, for eight and nine. And then for months 10, 11, and 12, you just don't recruit people because there was a tornado that, that you know damaged the civilization so much. So it just completely reshapes how brutal the back end is. Yeah, I, I actually haven't completed any games because I'm like playing async with some of these now. Sure. But my initial impression is that i don't really Leave care this for one. this yeah yeah i think it just like adds that like more of that mental tax tax of like forward planning that this game already as we've discussed is incredibly taxing about yeah you know i don't i don't know i mean if, if you're like oh i wish this game had like more clarity in what was going to happen so that i could like use my massive brain to like even more outthink my opponents then Sure. <laughs> I could see liking this expansion if I'd played 50 games of In the Year of the Dragon and I right. wanted something to mix it up. Uh, I could see liking some of these and really not liking others. There's one Jake called Assassination Attempt that just says at the end of round seven, all players must discard all their privilege tiles. That's just, that's not interesting, really. It just means yeah. that you, so privilege, like you just probably don't buy one. Yeah, privilege just isn't good this game, is what that really says. So, that to me weakens the decisions that you get to make. It doesn't give this game particularly a more yeah. interesting shape. I, yeah. you know, it, but it is, I guess, an attempt to like add more variety to this game, which Definitely. I think a lot of people would think Enjoy. that this game does not feel very variable from sure. game to game. And I, I think I'm one of those people. Just like I, you know, like it feels like there's some actions that are just like better early Mm. on in general, like, or some people rather that like you kind of like to be starting with. And I, I don't know if it's like more just like how I'm approaching the game, but I feel like the more I play, like I'm sort of settling into patterns of play Mm. that work. And that's making my games play more stagnant. Maybe I should be trying to like branch out and do more like crazy privilege like court ladies strategy and like see you know i I was really surprised to learn that the game uh, also was edited in the newer edition so that the price of the large privilege that gives you two points a turn 
went, went from six to seven yeah. because that was like a, perceived as an overpowered opening to just start your first turn by paying six for the two privilege that gives you 20 points in the course of the game. I would have never considered doing that, you know? Yeah. So I, I don't think I would have like figured that out mm. on my own. If like I hadn't seen somebody do it first, just yeah. cause like the way I'm approaching this game is like, okay, what's the next event? Like I want to be like prepared for it a lot more. So maybe that's partially on me to like find more innovative and explore the play space more, but I don't know how, how much like, I want to do that. Sure. <laughs> I've had a lot of fun trying to mess with that. I, I really like this privilege mechanism of you sort of invest in these tiles early on. You give up potentially some ability to build an engine, honestly, right? It, and then, but what you get for it in return is a bunch of points over the course of the game. I think that's really interesting and sort of seeing how far I can push that is a fun way to sort of up the ante and add some tension early on in the game of like, can I make this decision? I also really like the research strategy where you there's these uh, one person type where uh, it's a a, re- a scholar and there's a certain number of books and then there's a research action which just says you gain one victory point plus one for each book icon on your scholars scholars have three or two so I've had a couple games where against Jake I've gone all in on scholars I was able to grab the tile with three books and then a couple two books and every time I took the the research action I was scoring six points and then yeah. just trying to see if I could push on that pedal hard enough that I got over the finish line. I think you're more of like an explorer. Yeah, I, like a Johnny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're like gonna like push up against the edges of game system where I'm like more of like an optimizer. Like yep. find something that works and tweak it. I'm curious, when you go to like a favorite restaurant, yeah. do you order something different or get the same <sighs> meal? Because I'm definitely like a, like I know what I like and yeah. I get that. I can go both ways. I definitely, I have my favorites that I like, but I'm never, if we go to a restaurant six times a year, at least three of those times, I'm going to try to try dip something into something different. new. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. That's funny. I'm glad that through gameplay, you saw that. Do you, I guess in closing thoughts, Jake, like what's your, what do you like most? Or like what's, what will stick with you from this game? Or will anything stick with you? Or is this yeah. just like... Yeah. I think it, I think what sticks with me the most is that it feels like a very unique and fun Feld game. Yeah. Feld is a lot of his games I really love. I think, you know, overall probably my favorite designer just in terms of overall output. Uh, so, like, the the collector in me is like, I should probably, like, get this and yeah. just, like, add it to the collection. It, but, you know, I, I, I still... So now that I've like played it this much, I like it. I would keep playing it. Like if yeah. we did like a de- decision space tournament or something, I would participate. I think that would be a fun one, but I don't know that it has the potential to rise up into my favorites. And I think maybe that's just because of personal preference of like liking more of, of that cloudy decision space. That's less known turn to turn than this one offers. Yeah. I think for me, the, I really like Tableau Builders. We haven't covered a ton of games that sort of feel that way on the show. And this definitely has that feel. So it works for me on that level. But I think for me, what will stick most is one, the sort of how ripe of a system it is to sort of fight against this waning force, not because of how brutal it feels at the start, but because of how good it feels when you master it. Like you really feel like you accomplish something in this game when you play play the game well, which I don't think I can always say for all the games we cover on the show. And then the other thing that will stick with me is just how cool the system is of laying out, out all those events at the beginning and the motif of it being a year across these sort of 12, the two piece and the 10 randomized tiles. I think it's cute, but it's also a really rich way to add variability to the game without too much randomness. So I thought that was a novel system that I'm surprised more games don't have. You know, some some games have seating the board or whatever, but this feels a little different to me in some way. Yeah. So I'd, I'd love to see that in more games. Is it your favorite Feld game? It's a good question. I don't... We're. It's tough. I really like the Castles of Burgundy. I've come around on Carpe Diem. I liked Bonfire the more I played it. I think right now it's definitely in contention for my favorite Feld game, I think I I absolutely like this more than Carpe Diem. I do like it more than Bonfire. So it really comes down to, do I like it more than Castles of Burgundy? I haven't played Castles of Burgundy on the table in a couple of years, so I would like to be able to do that. I think for me, Castles of Burgundy just plays better on the table than it does digitally. I like it digitally, but it's it's fun on the table. Yeah, I like playing with the tiles. So if I did that, there's a chance I would end up liking this more. But it's definitely, it's a contender. And I think... I have fun with this game, 
but I also just really, from a intellectual perspective, think it's awesome. It's just like yeah. a really cool case study. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our episode. As always, we just want to thank you all so much for listening. We want to make another appeal for reviews. Uh, we'd love to read out some more reviews on the show, uh, on the show, uh, and that would really help us to grow. Uh, but just being here and listening this long means a ton. And we're going to get Jake a, a doctor tile, a healer right away, <laughs> so he can heal up. As a reminder, we're taking a break next week. So don't know that there won't be a decision space episode that appears in your feed. Just go check out the backlog. There's like 100 episodes. So many yeah. games to explore. Not then quite. It, there are 99. There are 99. <laughs> yes. That's the last time we could say that. Uh, but I guess happy end of the year to all of you. And we'll be really excited to be back the week after that with more episodes talking about future decision space. Yeah. Uh, and we said, as always, thank Henry for our intro and outro song. Reach out. Bye. Bye. Bye.